Hi everyone, my name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosley. And we are the hosts of the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. In today's episode, we're speaking with Professor Will Moreto about wildlife crime. Dr. Will Moreto is an associate professor and interim graduate programs director in the Department of Criminal Justice at the University of Central Florida. He received his PhD from the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Newark. He has published extensively on wildlife crime, wildlife crime prevention, and conservation-related enforcement, and has conducted fieldwork in Kenya, Nepal, the Philippines, and Uganda. He has collaborated with the International NGOs Worldwide Future, WWF, and ReWild, and has been involved in primary data collection in over 30 countries. Thank you so much for joining us, Will. We are excited to have you on the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm very honored to be here with you guys. And so a brief overview of today's episode, we are going to go over what exactly wildlife crime is. Then we're going to talk about a project or an article written or co-authored by our guest, Will. And then finally, we're going to talk about enforcement and sort of what goes into, I guess, policing wildlife crime. And so with that being said, Jen, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Okay. So our first question for you, Will, is broad and covers the whole scope of things, I'm sure. But simply put, what is wildlife crime? Yeah, you're right. Absolutely broad in terms of how it's understood, how it's interpreted. But broadly stated, it's essentially crimes that are against or involve wildlife. And wildlife here needs to be broadly defined as well, too. Often is the case that when we think about wildlife, we think of wild animals. But when it comes to wildlife, that actually does include also flora or plant kind of base species as well, too. So a lot of the stuff that I've done tends to focus on examining kind of illicit markets and specifically looking at the illegal wildlife trade. And so when it comes to legal wildlife trade, you're looking at illegally sourced, transported, traded products that are both fauna, so animal, and flora, which is plant. So in a nutshell, that is one component of wildlife crime is kind of the, it's overlap with illegal wildlife trade, wildlife trafficking, et cetera. However, there's also other forms of wildlife crime, including illegal killing of wildlife species, particularly obviously fauna, in retaliation as a result of human-wildlife conflict. And so human-wildlife conflict occurs when wildlife species either harm kill, hurt individuals, or they hurt or harm their kind of livelihood. So whether it be through crops, livestock, et cetera. And so as a result of that happening, there are some cases when people kind of retaliate against that. And in some cases, like that is legal. And so those are probably the two broad components that people tend to think of when it comes to wildlife crime. There's more, but for the sake of time, I'll give you those two right now. Awesome. And so then since we're talking about both fauna and flora. Flora. What types of species and plants are kind of most at risk at falling victim to wildlife crime? It's a hard question. No, it's a hard question only because it's largely dependent in terms of geographic region. It's also largely dependent in terms of how somebody might categorize threatened or endangered, right? I mean, there are kind of established kind of guidelines for this. There's an organization that has developed the Red List for endangered species. There are certain categories when it comes to legal trade as well, too. But it's going to be your typical megafauna. So you're looking at your elephants, right? Because of the economic value of the ivory. You're looking at rhino because of their rhino horn, pangolin because of their scales and their meat. With that in mind, there's also a lot of species that are threatened that people don't typically think of, right? And so you're looking at illegal cacti, for example. Cacti is actually one of the most profitable in terms of illegal wildlife trade, simply because of the fact that it's ornamental. It's fairly easy to access because you just literally, well, for the most part, it's easy to access because it's on the ground and you can get it. But it's also, people don't know if it's illegal or not. And so therefore your consumer market is fairly large as well. Moreover, there is a considerable market in terms of orchids. So illegal orchids, so the flower trade. And then you have other consumable products like illegal caviar, for example, which is fairly, fairly high up there as well too. And so... It's fairly broad. There's a lot in terms of what species are being targeted, but for the most part, it's going to be regionally defined, but then also what the market actually looks like specifically for threatened species for the market itself. 
Yeah, I'll have to say when I was like thinking through this episode, I was mostly thinking of animals versus plants, but it does make sense that both are included in this. So yeah, yeah really same. interesting. And I don't know, I just keep wanting to laugh at a cactus being illegal. Like my neighbors have cactuses in their front yards now. I'm like, should I be calling like the police or something? <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, it's fascinating, and and we'll probably touch upon this later on, but what's kind of interesting about wildlife products as well, too, is how some products might be laundered, right? And so you might have illegally sourced products that are now just put into a legal market, and then people have zero idea. And so in some cases, you might be at a grocery store, and say you're walking through the seafood aisle or whatever, and it'll state like this has been sustainably sourced or our products are sustainably sourced. You go to a restaurant, sometimes they say that as well, too, just because they want to emphasize and highlight the fact that they're catching their products ethically and sustainably, right? Because there are concerns in terms of laundering products, right? You know, one of the things that I found fascinating, you know, and Jen, to your point about just like you never think about certain things in a certain way. Like I didn't think about plants until I really got into it, right? And so like the yeah. research, but one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating was this idea of fish laundering, right? And this idea that there are certain types of fish species that are caught in mass and then basically laundered with legitimately caused fish in the high seas. And then that's brought back to the mainland and then it's sold as if it's legal, right? And so this idea of fish laundering was never something that I thought of, frankly, but it's a fascinating thing because it makes the market problematic in certain facets, but also it gives us an opportunity, at least from a research standpoint, to be like, wow, that's really interesting stuff, right? And so... Yeah, it's cool when you start seeing these kind of types of overlap. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I only ever heard of or thought of money laundering. So to hear that this happens in other spaces as well, it is fascinating. Speaking of the research, when did people really start studying wildlife crime and how has it changed over time? I mean, let me preface this with the growing recognition and acknowledgement that a lot of research that we've done tends to be global north centric. Moreover, it tends to be based in certain perspectives and ideologies, right? A lot of what we know from established criminal theory, you know, CJ perspectives, et cetera, are based in typically in the United States or in Europe, right? And so I would say that a lot of the research that has generated in the last couple of decades on wildlife crime has grown exponentially in terms of the topic itself. Now, with that in mind, there's been early research that just wasn't published in the English language or wasn't the mainstream kind of discussion that was published in the Global South when it was discussed in terms of wildlife crime, crimes against the environment in general. Realistically, we're starting to find more information that's been you know collected and discovered in like the 1970s and on, right? And so I would probably say that as an asterisk, I would go with a safe answer in the sense of there's been a growth of research on the topic starting in the 1990s, but there's a lot more research that's out there that we probably don't know about. And so I think when people start focusing on it, it's been a while. Let's just say that. Moreover, in terms of our field, other disciplines also study wildlife crime as well, too. So you have geographers, ecologists, you have folks in conservation biology, political geography, and they've been doing this for a while as well, too. So, Yeah. When you say it's grown exponentially, do you mean, like, I keep thinking of when, you know, you started to hear the general public being more concerned with the environment and these kinds of crimes that are occurring and the public or the social media accounts have gone off, you know, like in the last 10, 20 years, is that kind of when this research has just like taken off or was it earlier than that in the 90s and before? I say there's just a growing interest in terms of environment-related topics and issues, right? And so when it comes to wildlife crime itself, one is, at least from the criminological and criminal justice standpoint, we're starting to see more people do that research because if you look at it from a legalistic standpoint, it's a crime, right? So we should have avenue and space to maneuver through that. It's just whether or not you want to study that, right? And so... There's been a growth in that. And as a result, the more people doing research on that, there's more people who are doing, you know, papers, teaching it, whatever. And that, you know, hopefully results in more students coming up and, and, and kind of pursuing that avenue. So I'd say there's a combination in that. Moreover, there's an increased interest in the role of the social sciences in understanding conservation-related topics. 
typically conservation related topic is focused on the natural sciences, right? Which makes sense. But increasingly, people are starting to understand that we actually need to understand the social sciences a bit more, particularly when there's an overlap with human beings. When you're looking at laws, that's human related, right? Like those are human instructions, those are human applications, human enforcement, et cetera. But also we need to understand how the overlap itself impacts human beings themselves, right? Local communities that might be around protected areas, understanding kind of how they interpret laws, how they comply, all that stuff is really important. So I would say that it's a combination in terms of just more attention, but then also just more research coming at it from different angles, which has led to not only the identification of my place in this area of my research, if I'm thinking about it from a scholarship perspective, but this idea of, okay, now there might be more avenues for collaboration. There might be more research questions that are approached in a certain way and so on. And so I'd probably say it's a combination of a number of different things, but interest in the environment for sure is key in this. All right. So I did a quick search for wildlife crime and found, obviously, the World Wildlife Fund or WWF. And on their website, I'm quoting here, they state that in more than 50 years of conservation, we have never seen wildlife crime on such a scale. Wildlife crime is now the most urgent threat to three of the world's best loved species, elephants, rhinos, and tigers. Would you agree with this statement based off of the research you have done and have read? And more specifically, kind of how has the prevalence of wildlife crime changed over time? I mean, I would say that it's absolutely an important topic, right? And it's absolutely finally getting its the recognition it deserves. Now, one of the challenges, however, is how it's packaged and how it's framed, right? Because in, in some cases, and you'll see this with, with a lot of government organizations, NGOs, et cetera, is they tend to package it as this idea of transnational organized crime, right? And then that's how you can kind of emphasize the scale of it, severity of it. I would argue that it's serious enough as is. It doesn't necessarily need to be packaged as transnational organized crime. Moreover, not all wildlife crime is transnational organized crime. And so the assumption that it is might not only be misleading, but then also might be problematic in the sense of developing prevention measures that are not only sustainable, but also ethical, right? And so I would say that in terms of recognizing the the scope and scale, absolutely, because now you have an expansion of a couple of different things. One is globalization has led to basically the condensing of the world, right? Like now you have more transportation routes, you have better access in terms of getting products across. The advent of information technology, particularly the internet, has resulted in a growth of markets as well, both in terms of markets that could occur on a legal platform. So for example, eBay, or through the sale through the dark web, right? And so now you have a stronger connection between consumers, traders, sellers, et cetera. So now the prevalence has expanded not only from a physical landscape, but also from a virtual one as well too. And so there is that potential. Moreover, the idea of profit has led to the recognition that the legal trade in wildlife particularly can be profitable, right? So you might have more individuals who are dabbling in other types of illegal activities, who now might also dabble in wildlife trade or wildlife trafficking. And so I would say that the prevalence, yes, absolutely. Whether it's been happening at a smaller scale for decades is is questionable. Like, I think that it has been, we just don't know about it, right? And we're probably getting a little bit more information about it now as well, too. And so for the most part, yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. When we think about wildlife crime and, you know, like preventing or like engaging in this type of crime and preventing it or trying to explain it. Can we apply what we would consider like your more traditional criminological theories, you know, like your learning, your control to wildlife crime, or do we need to think of it in a different way and maybe a different, unique theoretical framework? That's a great question. It's one that, I mean, I've thought of for years now, And it was one that was a big part of how I developed, I guess, some of my research was the idea that looking solely at wildlife crime as a crime from a legalistic standpoint, but then also understanding kind of its broader implications, right? Because you have certain activities that are illegal that might be extremely harmful, right? So if you're looking at certain types of pollution, contributing certain types of legislation and that, it could harm a lot of people, right? Like you could have literally people being poisoned from their water, right? And that could be not only illegal, but extremely harmful. And understanding kind of these dynamics, I would say, provides us with an opportunity, at least from a criminological standpoint, to not only apply and test the theories that we have established, 
but identify ways in which we can adapt and improve. And so I think there's place to grow criminological theory. Like I said, I mean, a lot of what we know now is, is based in terms of the global north. You know, it's established. A lot of our theories are based from the 1960s to 1980s, like, like heavy, heavy, right? And so, you know, the development of new theory, I've talked to some students about this in our doc program. They're like, is there going to be a time where we're going to have new theories? I'm like, I don't know. You guys tell me. This is going to be, you know, up to you guys and kind of moving forward. But, you know, in all honesty and, and you know, joking aside, we haven't developed everything yet. I'd like to think we haven't yet because we're going to have new problems that are going to come into play. Now, with that in mind, does that mean that all our theories that are currently established are not going to be useful? Probably not because some of them are pretty good theories, right? And so I would say that there's an avenue and a place to test and assess whether or not these theories play out for sure. And in some cases, the challenge is whether we can also adapt Right. And so one of the most well-known theories that we have in premise is routine activities. Right. Now, routine activities is based on this idea of people intersecting in time and space at the same time. Right. You're a motivated defender, you're a single target, et cetera, in time and space. Now, that works in some types of wildlife crime. Right. So, for example, if I'm illegally hunting, let's just say an elephant just for the sake of it, and I'm using a rifle. Right. Or, or firearm, whatever. That intersection in time and space is there. Right. However, if I'm using a certain type of trap and I place the trap, I'm not there when that trap actually is sprung necessarily, right? So the intersection in time and space doesn't exist there, right? But a crime occurs, right? And so the theory then becomes challenged. And so what we did in one paper was argue that there's kind of this idea of a proxy offender, right? So you can actually have proxies that are for the offender, that those proxies intersect in time and space for a crime to occur, right? But the physical interaction is not necessarily there until later on, right? And so there's absolutely a place in a space to test, adjust when need be. But I also think that as we come to new crimes or new new crimes or develop new social you know, problems that exist, we will probably have to develop some new theories or at least adjust in a significant manner in a way. And I think that's exciting. I think that's the way things should kind of flow. Yeah, your example of routine activity theory is really interesting because you still have kind of like the motivation there behind the motivated offender, but the offender in this case is almost like the trap, but the person behind it. So yeah, see how that would need to be expanded upon or kind of shifted. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, and you know, it's fun because it's a complicated problem, right? Like a lot of social problems are. They're, they're very complicated. It's a wicked problem, but it's what makes it interesting, right? Because then we have to kind of get uncomfortable with some of the theories that we might have, the measures that we might have, and think to ourselves, like, maybe we need to adjust and adapt. You know, you have to be able to kind of be able to wiggle in some cases. A lot of our theories are based in terms of urban crime, right? And so trying to adjust to what's happening now, whether it be wildlife, whether it be cyber, what, you, know, whatever, you know, whatever it might be, you know, it makes it really interesting. And so, yeah, I think there's a place. I think it's just, it's going to take some creativity as well, too. Okay. So, so far you've alluded to some of the implications of wildlife crime, whether it's ecologically, economically, culturally, socially, et cetera. But just more directly, can you discuss a handful of the potential implications of wildlife crime? Sure. So I guess let me go with kind of the well, let me go with three right now, just because we covered quite a few already. Now, nah, let's go with four. Let's go with four. The first would be economic, right? So if you're looking at it from a standpoint, from an economic standpoint, wildlife crime can be problematic in a number of different reasons. One, if there is a legal trade that's for certain types of species, then you're pulling from that legal trade, right? You're pulling from the economic benefits that could arise either locally, nationally, or even regionally, right? And so there is an economic component within that as well. The second would be zoonotic, so biological public health, right? If you are possibly getting wildlife products for consumption, whether it be, you know, caviar, whether it be, you know, other products that you would consume and say it's not taken care of properly, prepared properly, whatever, it could result in public health issues. There's increasing discussion as it relates to how wildlife consumption has led to certain types of diseases in the world. And so there could be that issue as well, too. So there could be a public health component related to it. The third would be cultural. And so one of the implications, at least when it comes to wildlife crime, is it's overlap with cultural practices as well. And so if certain practices are deemed to be illegal, 
then that in itself might be problematic for the continuance of certain types of cultural practice, whether they're viewed to be right or wrong, right? And so I think that's, as a sidebar, I think that that's what's kind of fascinating about wildlife crime as well, as well as other types of crime, is it's not necessarily this idea of a black or white, what's right or what's wrong, right? It's very much a continuum that's very culturally defined as well. And so understanding the cultural implications for, for wildlife crime is really important as well. And then the final thing, I would probably say, because I mentioned ecological, I think one of the most important things to consider when it comes to wildlife crime is the human dimension of it. And the reason why I mentioned that is because this literally covers a lot of things that we were talking about, economic, public health, et cetera. When you think about wildlife crime, we tend to think of species, right? You know, whether it be fauna or flora, but human beings are very much implicated in this as well too, right? And so I think understanding kind of the human implications is really important, not only for just understanding the phenomenon itself, but then also appropriately identifying ways of prevention or enforcement or compliance or whatever it might be, because that needs to be couched within understanding the, the people where it's going to impact directly. And so yeah. off the bat, probably those four. Yeah. Wide scope of problematic implications. At least that's the take that I got from reading your work. And then now that we are talking to you. Yeah, it's complicated, right? As with most things, yeah. it's you know, with you know, a lot of things, it's complicated, but it's also simple. That's kind of the doctrinal nature of it. Sometimes we tend to oversimplify things, sometimes we overcomplicate things. In this case, it can be a little bit of both. It just kind of depends in terms of the frame of reference. Yeah. Okay, so I think we've set a pretty good foundation and we can start moving into discussing the paper that we're gonna be talking about today. So this was authored by our guest, Will Moreto and his colleague. And you'll have to correct me, as oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure that I'm going to butcher this pretty good right now. Dan P. Van Oom. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's Don Van Oom. So, uh, yeah, okay. well done. Well done. Well, I am so proud right now. <laughs> <laughs> the paper was published in the British Journal of Criminology in 2021. It's titled Nested Complex Crime, Assessing the Convergence of Wildlife Trafficking, Organized Crime, and loose criminal networks. In this paper, Will and Dan examine the experiences and perceptions of individuals familiar with illegal wildlife markets in two countries, Uganda and China. More specifically, the authors use qualitative data from 214 total individuals to examine the convergence between wildlife trafficking and organized crime from a crime mutualism framework. Okay, so earlier Jen asked you to define and describe what wildlife crime is. And so now we want to be a little more specific and you've started to touch on this a little bit, but can you describe what wildlife trafficking is and maybe give us some examples of what this might look like? Sure. So wildlife trafficking is essentially the transnational illegal wildlife trade, right? So in order for it to be trafficking, it needs to cross borders. You know, there is a domestic illegal wildlife trade as well too that exists in certain regions, certain countries, but for wildlife trafficking, it needs to be able to cross actual borders itself. So it's essentially the wildlife trade, but with a transnational component to it. And that results in kind of the sourcing of certain products from one region or from one country, the trading within that country, the transporting within that country, and then subsequently across the border to other consumer or source nations. Oh, example. So we have, oh yeah, example. Yeah. Examples. That's right. I'm sorry. I mean, a pretty straightforward one would be illegal ivory, right? So ivory trafficking, you'd have rhino horn trafficking, you'd have caviar, which would be some of the big ones, pangolin as well too, tiger parts. So certain types of tiger derivatives, although there is also a very strong domestic market for that as well too. And so, yeah, I mean, those would be just right off the top of my head and live birds as well too, parrots, et cetera. So. so we have discussed organized crime on the podcast before, but not in this context of a wildlife perspective. And so we are thinking about organized crime in this kind of area. What exactly are we referring to? So it was a little choppy there, Jen. So let me, in terms of the application of organized crime in wildlife? Yes, correct. Okay. So this goes back to my earlier comments about how wildlife trafficking can be framed. And so one of the challenges that we have is trying to separate transnational organized crime from wildlife trafficking. And so what you typically see when it comes to the role of transnational organized crime, at least from the research I've done and the research that I've read, is that it typically tends to show near the transportation 
out of the country's face, right? So when you're actually trying to get a product out of a country, that's when you're going to need a little bit more connections, whether it be through legitimate connections, whether it be through corruption of official authority figures, whatever it might be. That typically is when it starts to show up quite a bit, at least characteristics of it. It also can show up in some aspects for traders to consumers, depending on the scale of it, depending on the type of product itself. So if you're seeing more of a high scale, high end kind of product, you might have more involvement in that because the profits are going to be there, right? You typically do not see it at the sourcing stage, right? So when things are actually being illegally taken or poached or whatever, that is typically not where you're going to see it. Typically, right now, there might be some cases where they might outsource and hire somebody to go hunt, but typically that's going to be local, lower level types of offending, which then gets you know sent up to the top. And so typically it's when there's more logistically heavy components is when you're going to see more involvement, because then you're going to need resources, you're going to need political will or power, coercion, corruption, whatever it might be. Okay, so given these you know, definitional elements that we've been discussing what was the motivation behind writing this paper on the convergence between wildlife trafficking and organized crime? I think for me, and this is a conversation that Don and I had, and obviously he's not here to join us, so I'm just going to speak on his behalf. I love it. <laughs> no, this is just my thoughts. It was just increasing, I would say, lack of information as to the justification of linking transnational organized crime with wildlife trafficking. I mean, we had... There was a political reason for it. There's an economic reason. There's a security reason for it. Why it was being framed in a certain way, right? Because it's twofold. You say that wildlife trafficking is transnational organized crime. It automatically elevates the severity and the seriousness of it. Like there's not even a question of it. All you're starting to think about is how you would manifest and think about transnational organized crime. And now you're just saying, oh, now they're now it's it's, it's being done. It's being it's occurring with certain types of species that we all love and you know appreciate elephants, rhinos, tigers, etc. And so what it does is it creates an automatic audience and an understanding that it's important. The challenge was we just there wasn't as much information. Now, in some places in the world, there absolutely seems to be an involvement of transnational organized crime, right? There tends to be a lot of information that's coming out from South Africa that suggests that there is an increasing kind of role when it comes to rhino poaching specifically. But we can't just overgeneralize, right? And in some cases, wildlife trafficking has absolutely zero evidence of transnational organized crime, or at least very minimal. And so for me, it was just getting more research out there that is empirical, but also this idea that let's just kind of maybe unpack it a bit more instead of just assuming that it's just transnational organized crime. I think that for me, I think wildlife trafficking is serious as is, right? It's one of the largest black markets in the world depending on the metrics, and you guys know this, the metrics when it comes to anything global is very difficult. When it comes to black markets, illicit black markets, it's even worse because that's by definition very hard to quantify, right? Because it's underground. And so depending on your metric, it's either the third or fifth largest black market in the world, right? To, you know, buying guns, drugs, you know, human trafficking, and so on. And so it's serious on its own. Right. And it has certain significant implications beyond kind of law enforcement, beyond security. There's obviously public health, et cetera, economic and cultural. And for me, it was just trying to do more research to emphasize and highlight. Let's just look at this specifically. And then if we see organized crime, where does it appear? You know, it doesn't it's not just going to appear throughout the entire market. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It was trying to get a better understanding of that. And so that was really the motivation for it. And so, yeah, that was primarily, it. you know, just. All right. So in this paper, and you've mentioned this a little bit throughout the episode, but you theorize that wildlife trafficking involves a variety of different levels of organization and resources that occur at all different stages. You've mentioned sourcing. There's also the transporting and then the trading of illegal wildlife products. So in other words, to kind of look at wildlife trafficking, we needed to look at this nested nature, which is really what you're setting out to do here. And can you tell us, I guess you kind of alluded to this in your last response, but why did you put forward this theoretical idea of wildlife trafficking as a nested complex crime? Because we had to adapt. This goes back to Jose's point about like, it was one of those things where 
we had a definition as it relates to complex crime, you know, like organized crime is viewed to be complex crime because there's moving pieces and parts. There's multiple individuals. You look at illegal or illicit trades, same idea, right? You have different yeah. individuals, you know, certain moving pieces. But the way we viewed it and the way we were kind of looking at this problem was, but they were still separate on their own. The idea of nested complex crime was this idea of how one complex crime could be couched or nested within another. So you're using certain types of resources, whatever it might be, but it's still its own type of complex entity, right? It's not, it doesn't combine to form necessarily one new one. It still has its own kind of dynamics and whatever it might be. And it could still largely survive without wildlife trafficking. Like transnational organized crime will survive without, you know, wildlife trafficking. You can switch over to guns, drugs, etc. And so one of the key things that we want to emphasize and highlight was this idea that you might have one complex crime that assists in providing, whether it be actors, settings, resources, equipment, certain stages to facilitate the growth or the completion of another complex crime, right? And that was really the main reason why we want to try and make sure that we understood its mutual exclusivity, but also this idea that there are going to be components where one pulls from another. And that's the reason why we kind of developed this idea of nested complex crime. So to just break that down a little bit more, it's like the sourcing component might be mostly wildlife trafficking, whereas the actual like trading part might be organized crime, but we don't know. So we're kind of going at them as separate things, but they might overlap. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay. those things. And so one of the things that we did in this paper that it was drawn from some earlier research that I did was looking at the legal wildlife trade, like looking at the wildlife themselves as products, right? And, you know, when it comes to wildlife trafficking, there is still a very much an emotional component to it, right? Like you don't want to look at certain wildlife as products. You know, it seems to devalue what they are as living species in in a lot of cases. With that in mind, if you are trading wildlife products, that's how you view them as products to move and, and to move around. In order for certain products to be profitable, some have to be processed in a certain way. They have to be made in a way where they can be transported properly, where they're going to make it to the end consumer. If something's alive, there's additional logistics related to that. Like you have to be able to to feed, take care, et cetera, transport in a certain way as well, too. You know, one of the key things that, you know, I found in my research is that people tend to, to transport certain types of species at night. Why? Because they're nocturnal and they don't make sounds when they're awake, right? So it's easy to transport them. All these kind of logistics and components highlight the fact that in wildlife trafficking, the product itself has a very strong influence in terms of what people are involved, what stages are needed as well too. And so the way that we kind of envision this idea of nested complex crime is you already have people who can transport illegal goods through certain pathways, right? You're not going to create a new one for wildlife trafficking. You're going to use the same ones that you use for drugs, guns, people. Like you, you just are. Why? Because they've worked, right? And so you might find that person who's just familiar with transporting certain types of illegal goods, services, whatever, and just be like, just move this ivory, right? Okay, great. I don't have to create anything new. There's no added logistics. And then there you go. Now you're using certain types of resources, right? So it's this idea that certain resources, certain actors already exist. It's how this kind of other complex crime can use those resources to further develop its growth while also benefiting this original group that now has its you know hands in multiple different types of illegal, you know illegal pots. Right. Makes sense. Okay. So you also bring in the idea of crime symbiosis, which can manifest it in several ways. In the paper you described crime symbiosis manifesting as crime mutualism. And so can you describe to us what you mean by crime mutualism and how does it play into wildlife trafficking? Sure. So well, we just keep going back to like what we just talked about earlier. And then I'm also going to. Yeah. So I didn't create this. Let me just be very clear. I'm not this smart. You know, Marcus Felsen developed this idea of crime mutualism, basically argued that you can both have illegitimate and legitimate activities that interact with one another. You know, they could be illegitimate and illegitimate. So that would be the case of complex crime actors working together, right? It could be illegitimate or legitimate. That would be the case in terms of political officials working with transnational organized crime groups, or it could be through laundering of products, you know, whatever it might be. And usually involves the sharing or the exchange of certain types of resources, whether it be 
individuals, equipment, etc. It could also involve getting in the way or stopping mutual adversaries, right? So in this case, it'd be, it could be law enforcement, right? Trying to find identifying ways to stop law enforcement being involved in, in stopping the act itself. Or it could be through the spreading of crime, right? And so like kind of I mentioned, when you have the use or the encouragement of organized crime in certain stages of the legal wildlife trade, that helps promote and spread the crime itself, right? Moreover, if you're finding ways that it you're demonstrating that it can be profitable, then other individuals may also want now to be involved as well, right? So now again, that's spreading the potential opportunities as well. And so that's typically the idea of crime mutualism. And so at least as it relates to what we did in our study, what we found was, again, very stage specific in terms of when crime mutualism would occur. And typically what you would see is it's overlap with corruption, and so typically you'd see it in the sense of individuals who'd be able to bribe certain types of authority figures, or you might be able to get access through legitimate means. So you might have individuals who might be working at an airport and you can get certain types of products to them by through those kind of contacts. And so you could have both, again, illegitimate and legitimate kind of overlap, but corruption was a pretty big component as it relates to kind of providing a foundation for crime mutualism to actually occur both settings, both in Ghana and in China. All right. So starting to get into kind of the methodology for this paper, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that you're actually using data from two different projects, which if I remember right, these are coming from both of your individual dissertation projects, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So really, I'm just interested in why you decided to use data from both the Uganda and China projects rather than just one or the other. What made you decide to use both? Well, first and foremost, we were having a lot of conversation about the work that we were doing. And we we're just like, there's a lot of overlap here. Like you're seeing like this manifest in a certain way in your case study. I'm seeing it in mine. And it wasn't something that you're typically, you think about when you're doing research, right? Like this idea of like this combined data sets that are primary data and quality. You just never think about that. You know, we think about it for different ways. And we were just, we kept talking and I'm like, you know what? Let's try this out. Let's see if we can actually establish and draw from you know a theoretical framework that exists, adapt it when necessary, but let's see if it plays out in these two settings, right? I mean, we are seeing certain types of findings manifest in both data sets. Let's see if it applies theoretically, because realistically, you could have done one case study in, the, in Uganda and then one in, in China, you know, there's two papers, right. I guess, but it didn't hit the mark that we wanted it to hit. Like we wanted to kind of look at in the sense of not only multiple sites, but he was able to provide some guidance and insight on his study that filled out some of the gaps in the Uganda case study, right? And so it was just providing us with a fuller appreciation for the problem and giving us more avenues to actually assess it. And also it was challenging. Like it was not easy to kind of view it from that way because we had completely different methods in the way we kind of did things, right? And so trying to be very clear and transparent in how we did our methods and then explaining how it led to our findings was a fun exercise, you know, getting it through the journal and also great feedback from the reviewers because they were on board. They were just like, explain this more, right? Which turned out to lead to a better paper. But it also just, it made sure that we were kind of approaching the manner that it was an ad hoc kind of assessment. And typically that's not the case when it comes to qualitative. And we would just we want to try and see if we could pull this off in, in a certain way. You know, fortunately it worked out and it gave us different insights. It's not only an established theoretical framework, but then also how to do kind of qualitative assessments and analysis even after the fact. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely thought I'm mostly trained in quantitative data. So Jose is the one who does more of the qualitative work. But, you know, I knew that it wasn't typical to kind of look at methods and do this on the back end. And so I did. I think it was really interesting just how you pulled it off. And I'm assuming there's different cultural elements that went into both of your projects as well. So kind of trying to mesh those together. Yeah. Kudos to both of you because it turned yeah. out to be cool. Yeah, I mean, I love writing method sections for qualitative articles. I love reading them. Like, I love absolutely reading the work that's being out there right now and how detailed and transparent the method sections are for qualitative work. It's one of the most challenging parts to write, but it's probably one of the best. I enjoy really writing it, but the, because then you get to reflect back on certain things. Now, the main thing with this project was we had a brand new research question. Right, we had a brand new research question that we didn't really think about when we were collecting the data, but the data was appearing 
throughout the course of our interviews, throughout our field work. And so it's just, again, revisiting the data and be like, all right, let's kind of scrap how else we think about this data. Here's our new research objective. Now let's start looking at it from that standpoint, right? And you have to kind of look at the data differently. You have to reanalyze the data. But it's fascinating because then that data, it's giving you something different that you didn't expect that it was going to show you in the first place. So it was a fascinating exercise. So, yeah. Okay, so let's start moving into your actual results. You know, like this is what everyone's been waiting for up to this moment. Yeah. So you had two main objectives, the first of which was to investigate respondents' orientation towards the potential existence and influence of organized crime within illegal wildlife markets in Uganda and China. What did your findings suggest? Was organized crime present within the wildlife trade? So, I mean, I guess it's not really much of a spoiler alert since it's already talked about it repeatedly in the sense of the way it's been set up, but we saw some evidence of it in the latter stages, particularly as it relates to kind of coordinating transportation routes and facilitating coordination with corrupt officials, providing resources for bribes or documentation, falsified documentation, stuff like that. But we saw, for the most part, fairly little at the sourcing stage. So when hunters themselves would opportunistically hunt or gather illegal products or illegally harvested or caught products. We saw very little of that. Moreover, we saw more of this idea of loose criminal networks. So individuals who were engaged in criminal behavior and activities who had certain skill sets then would be hired. Be like, all right, now you're going to be on, you know, you're, you're on the clock, you're, you're hired now. But they don't know who the next person necessarily is or when they're going to meet them. They don't know the person above them. They don't know where it's going to eventually end up. All they care about is, all right, here's a quick, you know, quick job and, and here we go. And so from the traditional view of organized crime, which is top down and everybody knows everybody, I mean, we just didn't see that in both case studies. There was more of its presence in the latter stages, the more complicated stages, I would say, logistically complicated, but in the early stages, not really. It was more short-term, very infrequent interactions, very informal, very opportunistic. Whereas the latter stages, you had to have more of an established connection. You had to have a little bit more trust in one another, and then also more resources to convince people to cooperate. So. Okay. And next, you were interested in assessing the applicability of the stage-specific crime mutualism framework to try and kind of explain this convergence between wildlife trafficking and organized crime actors. You already mentioned that there was this element of corruption and kind of this mutualistic relationship, but Did you find any evidence of like variation in this mutualistic relationship by stage and or by country? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think it's fascinating is when you're looking, when you break down the full market to its parts, then you start being able to identify some of the nuance, right? So from the sourcing stage to the trading stage, there was absolutely different types of relationships, right? Again, more sourcing or the, you know, the harvesting, the taking was far more opportunistic. It wasn't as established, at least in Uganda. In China, it was a little bit different. There was some evidence of more arranged contracts. When it came to some of the trading, again, depending on the stage itself, like, so if you're going from the illegal hunter to the next, to the transporter, there wasn't very much in terms of actual understanding of one another, right? Like there just wasn't. But if you're going from contact from country A to country B, there was probably more of a long-term kind of frequent kind of interaction at that stage specifically. So when it came to a stage specific kind of component, yeah, you saw some differences there as well. And so again, it's it helps kind of address some of the questions related to is wildlife trafficking transnational organized crime? The answer is not necessarily, but in some stages it may occur. In other stages, it might be more loose criminal networks that have zero organization, at least hierarchical organization, but they know each other very well because they know how to commit certain types of activities really well. It's more of a contractual outsourcing kind of event in those stages. Yeah, it was really interesting to look at the stage specific findings that you concluded within the paper. And it wasn't, I mean, granted, I don't know really anything about this, but it was surprising to me, but also not because I could see how the sourcing would be more of just, you know, these people who are out and do the hunting or do, you know, collecting the flora and whatever else. And then as it can increasingly gets more complicated, you need to rely on these other actors to kind of accomplish the final goal. But yeah, it was cool to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it gets to this idea of if you have established resources or connections already, right, you might as well Mm -hmm. maximize and be efficient. You know, one of the key things is 
people like to be efficient, right? They don't necessarily want to reinvent the wheel if, if they already have access and if they need to move certain things. And so you use people who know what they're doing or you establish mm-hmm. contact later on. And so, yeah, it's from a stage specific kind of component, it's, it facilitates and elucidates that a little bit more. Absolutely. Okay. So what are the implications of your study for research, but also policy and practice? I think from a research standpoint, it goes to this idea of, again, using established kind of criminological theory, right? Or approaches and applying it to a crime type that we're not overly familiar with. It emphasizes and highlights the potential role that we have as social scientists in conservation-related problems. And again, this, I think as we move forward in science, I think increasingly the idea of interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research needs to really be at the forefront. One, because it challenges us to do things a little differently, but also it allows us to apply what we know to problems that are going to be multifaceted and complicated, right? And so, at least from a theoretical standpoint, I think that that would be at least one contribution. The other thing, too, would be further emphasizing and highlighting the kind of the, I guess, stage and product influences that exist when it comes to the legal wildlife trade. But then also the introduction of this idea of nested complex crimes, right? This idea that crimes don't have to be the same, like in order for it to be recognized as a problem, right? Each one has its own dynamics. And then in some cases, there might be some mutualistic kind of components that are needed. From a policy standpoint, for me, I think the key thing is trying to emphasize and highlight that not all responses that are tailored for transnational organized crime are necessarily going to work here. And in some cases, it might actually be problematic. If you're looking at not only just understanding enforcement, but then compliance, you know, this may not necessarily be the proper approach. You know, compliance might require a little bit more localized, culturally sensitive kind of approach, especially when you're looking at, you know, the sourcing stage, right? If you're looking at the transportation stage, they, you know, it probably won't matter as much because those, again, those are the more logistically heavy, profit-driven individuals, right? And so I think it just highlights the fact that different responses are going to be warranted for different stages, different individuals when it comes to something that is as complicated as this. A one, you know, a blanket approach is not going to be not only effective, but it also might be counterproductive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, and so we want to jump into this topic of enforcement. And so we have this paper authored by our guest, Will Moretto, and his colleague, Richard Charlton. It was published in Oryx. Is that how you say that? Correct, yeah. Oryx in 2021. It's titled, Rangers Can't Be With Every Elephant, Assessing Rangers' Perceptions of a Community Problem-Solving Policing Model for Protected Areas. And so can you just start off by giving us a quick summary of the paper including its background and kind of the goals? Sure. So this paper kind of originated from early aspects of my dissertation. I did some subsequent field work afterwards as well. And it looked just examining the workplace climate and environment and perceptions of conservation rangers in Uganda, specifically trying to understand not only job stress and job satisfaction, community relations, but then also just their thoughts in terms of what they do and whether or not they felt that it was important. And one of the key kind of sections in my observations and my interviews was just asking rangers, like, what are your thoughts on enforcement? Like, what are your thoughts in terms of the deterrent impact of enforcement? What are your thoughts on alternatives to enforcement? You know, the patrol work that you're doing, you know, what are some potential alternatives to it? And really getting back to a lot of what we've done in policing research in kind of the history of criminal justice research and criminological research, right? Understanding, you know, what's necessarily more effective? Is it patrol work? Is it going to be, you know, does that have a deterrent value or is it going to be other kind of policing perspectives? And so that was really kind of the impetus for the study, or at least for this specific study, was trying to look at their thoughts as to how effective they were in deterring crime, whether their enforcement activities were perceived to be useful, and also what their thoughts were for non enforcement or alternative approaches as well. Okay. So before, you know, we keep going further, we kind of want to break down what exactly a ranger is and does, because, you know, when I think of a ranger, I just think of this person wearing like some hiking boots, some khaki shorts with like a safari hat telling us to 
you know, put our food away in like these metal containers so that the bears don't get our food. But I'm guessing there's a little more to them than simply just, I don't even know if I'm describing a ranger. I think I'm just by <laughs> describing like someone from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> so could you tell us a little more about what a ranger is and what they do? Well, great question, man. No, you're bang on. You're absolutely bang on. One of the biggest challenges in conducting this research is the very definition of what a conservation ranger is, right? There's different terminology and job titles. There's game wardens, there's rangers, there's a lot, there's a lot. There's actually been a study, there was an attempt to examine not only the different names and titles of rangers, it's in the hundreds, but also the different roles and responsibilities. Like you mentioned, yeah, absolutely. That that is part of important parcel in terms of what's responsible for a conservation ranger. In some areas in the world, they're also responsible for doing certain types of patrol work in protected areas, right? And so in Uganda, there's law enforcement rangers who are responsible for going in protected areas and making arrests when need be, just taking a look at the status of the protected area itself, helping wildlife when, when need be as well, too. In some places, that's not necessarily what they need to do, right? Like it might literally just be certain types of code enforcement, whether it be littering or off-tracking or, or you, know, you know, those kind of issues. And so... Very broad in terms of the roles and responsibilities. Some rangers also do not have a law enforcement role or capacity or responsibility as well. Others do. And so it's very quite a bit. In Uganda specifically, where I did my research for this paper, there are certain types of rangers who are responsible for law enforcement. So those, those are the ones who are going out on patrols in the bush. And then you also have community rangers who are responsible for engagement with the community, conducting education services, addressing human wildlife conflict. You have tourism rangers who are responsible for tourism initiatives, you know, providing uh, meeting with tourists, taking them on, on game drives and et cetera. And so different types of rangers in that capacity. The, the, the term itself is very, it's not as simple as as straightforward as if you say police, and people typically know what that means, right? Ranger, like to your point, there's some variation. So no, it's a great question. It's, a, it's probably the most frustrating question because it's so hard to answer because there's so much going on with it. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you interviewed 89 rangers including you know, law enforcement, intelligence, and community conservation rangers in Uganda, what were their attitudes towards traditional enforcement and the effectiveness of these strategies? It was interesting because it was split in the, in the way where they saw the value in it. Like the overwhelming majority of people saw that, yeah, we need to continue to do patrolling. Because one of the most important aspects of patrolling is, again, it's not just a law enforcement component. It's also just seeing how the animals are doing, how the habitat's doing and, and all that. So there's also like a data collecting component to it as well. So from that standpoint, they saw absolute value in that as well. From an enforcement perspective, they also saw some value in it. With that in mind, they also recognize some limitations of it. Right. They, they recognize the fact that they're very, they're not as resourced as they could be. They also understand that they're not able to cover as much ground and land as, as humanly possible. Right. I mean, you're looking at, you know, over 1900 square kilometers and you have at that time, they had about 80, 80, yeah, about 85 law enforcement rangers covering that entire landscape. It's impossible. Right. It just is. So deterrent factor, at least, you know, statistically is low. Right. Conceptually, it's not like a lot of the, you know, some of the rangers are like, no, we deter crime because we're out patrolling. And I'm like, but do you think that they know you're out there or do you think they're going to be able to interact? And so they did feel as if they had a deterrent component. Now, you know, realistically, probably not as as much when you're thinking about land coverage and, and all that. But the idea that they still felt that there was a place for it was high up there. Right now, whether or not that's individual preference or organizational, right? Like how you're trained, kind of the symbols, the cultural components of it. But we know from policing research, you can apply here as well too. You want to know that what you're doing is effective, right? Like you want, you're being told like this is effective. So, you know, you kind of want to buy into it. So there could be some of that going on as well too. And so in general, yeah, a lot of them did feel as if traditional enforcement was effective. Now they also felt similar for other alternative approaches as well too. And in some cases, they felt that those approaches are going to be more effective in the long run. And can you tell us a little bit more about those non-enforcement strategies and how they felt about those? Can do. And so typically when you're looking at enforcement, again, it's patrol heavy work, right? Like you're actually going on patrol. If you arrest somebody, then you take them to the police and hopefully they're, you know, that they're prosecuted, they're found guilty, et cetera. The other alternatives have to do with education 
getting community members, you know, whether it be through having rangers go to these communities, explain to them the rules, regulations, why it's important for them not to go out into the protected area, whether it be good for their own public health and safety, right? Because if you're in a protected area, you could be actually harmed by wildlife. Also explain the economic benefits of having a protected area, right? Because then you have tourists there and then hopefully that generates into local investment and, and so on. And so there's a lot of this idea of just trying to provide more information to the local communities so that they themselves not only comply because they believe it's morally appropriate or economically appropriate or whatever to not engage in illegal activity. And also this idea of informal guardianship, right? This notion that if we are able to convince you to just watch over your neighbors, maybe educate them, you know, pass on that message or call us whenever they're not listening, that expands the ability for law enforcement to have an impact as well too, right? So again, it's, I mean, if you're thinking about from crim perspective, right, it's again, it's establishing this idea of guardianship, right? Ensuring that there's a growth in that, you know, identifying various ways to establish and promote social bonds, right? Like there is some overlap there for sure. And so those are some of the alternative approaches that were happening and that are happening that rangers themselves felt that were actually fairly beneficial as well. And one of the key things that, you know, as I was having my conversations and kind of the observations was, you know, and I hate dichotomous, like binary questions when it comes to qualitative, but I just, it had to be asked, right? Which was, which one do you think is going to be more effective enforcement or, or these kind of non-enforcement strategies, right? Simply, you know, which one's going to be more effective? The majority actually said non-enforcement because they felt as if not only did it have a more long-term sustainable impact, but they also recognized some of the limitations as well, right? They, they had, and it wasn't just their enforcement. It was what I would refer to as more of the, the criminal justice cynicism, right? So if I arrest somebody and I take them to the police and that person bribes that police officer now and then is let go, that's awful because one, I'm seeing that the system's not working and also I didn't get that bribe, right? And so there's issues in terms of that component. Moreover, whether or not somebody's actually charged or prosecuted, there's corruption in those components as well too. So it wasn't just this idea of that, can we do our job properly? But what happens if we do our job properly? Is the system going to be effective as well, too? And if it's not, then there is an issue with that as well, related to not only just the morale of the ranger or the rangers themselves, then also just the system itself is not going to be very serious, right? And so hence why a lot of them did feel as if non-enforcement, non-criminal justice responses were going to be just as useful, if not more so. Interesting. So touching on that. You know, you also bring that up in your study that your participants kind of felt that arrests, you know, they are measures of success from a legal standpoint, but they also could turn into not super successful, as you just mentioned. But they also kind of see an arrest as a measure of failure from this conservation standpoint, which I thought was really interesting and kind of this important point that you brought up. And that was because a poaching incident would have still occurred for that arrest to have happened. And so based off of your work, this study, as well as your other work, what do you think needs to be done to reduce the frequency and or prevalence of poaching incidents? I mean, a lot of it is probably going to be just educational based. I mean, a lot of what we know when it comes to prevention is a lot of it can be socialized, right? But in order for that to happen, a lot more education information needs to be sent out. What's fascinating is from conservation, and again, what I what I love about this work is that it's inherently it has to be interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary. And so not only are we able to apply what we know from our field to this area and maybe kind of provide a different perspective, you have to get in the literature for other fields. Like you have to, right? To understand what's going on in, in that realm. And it's been fascinating in that capacity. And so education is really an important element in this, particularly intergenerational education. And so a lot of what's happened, at least in conservation, is that a lot of programs tend to focus on kids, right? In terms of school programs. Why? Because you can communicate things in a certain way. Like you can communicate the value of, you know, the environment or wildlife or whatever it might be in certain ways. Like it can be through song, it can be through plays, it can be through just direct messaging, but it can be also contextualized to that context, that culture, right? So it's delivered in a manner that is understood, but that is appreciated. What they found in some conservation-based studies is that if you 
educate the kids, they themselves might be able to educate their parents, right? They're able to actually transfer that information up to their parents. And as a result, now you're seeing more of a multiplied effect. Now, with that in mind, if you're looking at education, you also have to probably approach it in certain ways as well too, right? So there has to be a very specific approach to it, but also you have to approach it in a matter that is absolutely contextually appropriate. And I've said that multiple times, but this is, the reason why it's important is this. One is how you communicate to elders, right? To adults, to children, but then also gender. There could be a very important kind of gendered component in how you communicate rules, regulations, and also expectations. And so I would say that one of the most important ways to kind of curb or prevent wildlife crime would be through that, just more information, providing people with more information. And the other thing would be to emphasize and highlight responses that are not necessarily going to be criminal justice, right? Now, there are times when criminal justice responses are absolutely needed. However, we also know, and to your point, what you just said about if an animal's already killed, the game's lost, technically, when you're looking at it from an environmental kind of component, right? Arresting and all that stuff is already kind of, it's a different outcome that you want. What you want is that animal not to be taken or that plant not to be harvested or whatever. That's prevention in this case, right? And so for that to occur, a reactive CJ response is not necessarily going to be the most effective, right? And so other responses might be more useful. You know, I already mentioned education. There can be the pathway and avenue for situational crime prevention as well, too. And, you know, crime prevention through environmental design when necessary, when appropriate as well. And again, just more information is what's probably going to be needed. It sounds like that's what your participants in this specific study were also really getting at, too. So kind of come full circle. Yeah. And I expected, I didn't really, I expected, and I try and obviously approach from a fairly open mind, but I expected like, no, law enforcement's great. Like, mm, you know, right. we are, we catch everybody. And there are some who were adamant, like we catch everybody. And I'm like, okay, that's fair. Why do you think that's the case? Right? right. And then others are like, we know, like, this is not going to work. Like it just does not work. And so it was fascinating to get those different experiences and different perspectives. And again, it's the reality of it. Like you can talk to urban police officers and they'll likely say the same thing. Like some of them will be on board, like, yeah, well, you know, let's just do random patrol. We're all good. Like, okay. Other folks are going to be like, no, let's do more targeted. And then other folks will be, let's do more targeted. But then they also understand the social outcomes of that. Right. Like, and so it's a fascinating kind of gig when it comes to enforcement and it does play out. And that's, you know, when we're thinking about the role of, you know, criminologists, criminal justice scholars in a topic that's not typically in our wheelhouse, this is what I think we can bring, right? This information that we know and applied in this environment, but then also get that information and start applying it to what we know about in policing, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. Okay, well, thank you. Well, those are all the questions that we have for you today. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk to us this morning. Is there anything you'd like to plug, anything we should be on the lookout for in the near future? I mean, I have a couple of things that are coming through the pipeline, but then that's going to hold me to a deadline. And I don't really want right. to do the deadline. <laughs> we don't, we're academics. We don't do deadlines. Well. I don't want to be like, yeah, you know, I got this thing happening in spring. No, no. I just want to say thanks for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure having a conversation with you guys. You guys are doing great with this stuff. I think it's awesome that there's this platform to disseminate not only just the work, but then also for people to... I guess, virtually meet some of the folks that they might be reading about. So I've enjoyed listening to you guys in the past. Again, it's an honor to be here with you guys today. And thanks so much. It was great having this conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge. It was great speaking with you and learning more about this. This is an area. So we did do one episode on green criminology, what, two years ago? I don't know if that's one that you listened to, but Jose and I didn't really know what to expect going into that episode. And I left and I was like, man, maybe I shouldn't do this correction stuff anymore. And <laughs> I think it's really cool. It's really interesting to me. So thank you for coming on and sharing more about your work. Of course. And again, like there's plenty of space when it comes to this kind of work and research. And I think that the more that we have folks who are trained in our field, in our discipline, who know our theories, who know our research can have a very impactful influence in the work that's being done. And so, yeah, now hopefully more of this stuff will continue. So, Yeah, absolutely. And where can people find you? Email, the Twitter, website, any of those? Well, first of all, I love the fact that you called it the Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I try and get there as frequently as I can. And unfortunately, there's lapses there as well, too. But yeah, at more to... PhD is my Twitter. 
And then email is william.moretto at ucf.edu. And so, yeah, feel free to email me or tweet me at the Twitter and I'll be more than happy to respond. So, Perfect. Well, thank you again. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Guys. Have a great day. Okay. And I'll hopefully see you guys at ASC. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We'll be there. Awesome. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.